NBs, queers, ladies, gents, and everyone outside and in between. My name is Adrian Ash, and I am the host of Fanatomy. Welcome to the show. So, basically, what we're doing here is I'm interviewing musicians and other creative people about their favorite music because music is the language that I speak. And uh, yeah, I pretty much just started this podcast as a way to keep myself entertained during pandemic times when we're all sort of grounded from playing big shows and going on tour and stuff. And I wanted to keep myself, um, you know, occupied with something musical and something productive. So I had this idea to get in touch with some really good friends of mine and pick their brain about their favorite music. And uh, it's been a really awesome experience. I've learned a lot from other people about their perspectives, and uh, it's it's been really cool. So I really hope that you enjoy what we've put together here. Um, our first guest is going to be Mr. Aaron Say, who is the badass, amazing dude who runs Seventh Circle Music Collective, took it over when it was Blastomat no longer in 2012 and uh, just created this amazing environment um, where anyone can can sort of be themselves on stage with a laissez-faire anything goes sort of attitude around the whole place Um, but Seven Circle is an awesome venue it's where I started playing shows in Colorado. Um, I met Aaron Say at an Against Me Gaslight Anthem show in Kansas City, and he convinced me to move to Colorado, which a year later, I did. And I started Plasma Canvas because of our friendship. Um, so I'm really grateful for him, and also really grateful to Mr. Johnny Leftwich behind the scenes of this show, taking care of the editing and producing. So I just want to thank Johnny for being a part of this with me and helping get it off the ground. Um, also, while we're here, I would love to ask you to subscribe to our Patreon. It's, uh, it's really helping us get things off the ground so far, um, and it'll continue to help us do so and keep it going for as long as we can keep it going. And uh, in doing so, in subscribing to that Patreon, you will get access to a show called The Green Room, which is basically bonus content um, that we put together at the end of every single interview that I do. Uh, where me and the guest, after we talk about big, heavy, serious stuff, whatever, about their favorite artists and like, you know, their life experience and their music, um, basically the green room is just a, a place where we just get to have fun and, and talk as friends. So if you're into that sort of thing and you want to help out the show and you want a little bit of extra fun content, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. It would really help us out. And uh, I think the content that you'll find there is pretty cool. And we're going to be adding some stuff to it in the next coming weeks or months or so. So Um, Thanks for helping us out. Thanks for listening to the show. And without further ado, I'm going to carry it on over to my interview with Aaron Say from Seventh Circle Music Collective. Thank you all so much for being a part of this experience, and I hope you enjoy the ride. Wow. (laughs) Right on. That was so fast. (laughs) I was. Off we go. <laughs> yeah, there's there's like still dust in the air. <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> oh my god. Well, hey Aaron, welcome to the uh, Fanatomy podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So glad to be here. Yeah. Um so <laughs> Oh jeez. I'm so sorry. It's just uh, been that's all right. it's, it's been one of those mornings, man. Already? 
Yeah. Yeah, for real. But it's okay. I mean, like, not a bad one of those mornings. Just one of those, like, I washed my hands and I got the sleeve wet on my hoodie, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And I, like, you know, I had just put on fresh, clean socks and I, like, stepped on a chunk of ice cube that I dropped oh, on no. the floor. Wet socks are the worst. Yeah, there's, like, a there's <laughs> there's a song by that, that band Death Cow about that. They have a song called Wet Socks. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, it's one of the things that I hate most in my life is wet socks. Oh god! I literally keep an extra pair of socks in the van just in case, in case <laughs> somehow they get wet. <laughs> well, we're all, that's that's incredible. Of course you do. Of course you do. Man. Like, I mean, like you were saying, I'm prepared. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If there's any one word that describes Aaron, say it's prepared because you are usually the only adult in the room. <laughs> For better or for worse, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, well, welcome to the show, Mr. Aaron Say, uh, King of Denver DIY, owner oh, of Seventh Circle Music Collective. <laughs> We're just, you know, I just kind of wanted to introduce you to to the world as, you know, like through the eyes of, through the lens of this podcast, you know, like people, people definitely know who you are in Denver, but like a lot of people everywhere else definitely don't. So. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe they do. I don't know. You're kind of a legendary figure, my dude. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there there definitely have been times that I've been at shows in other states and I'll run into someone that I know and didn't expect to see them, you know. So that's that's fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, welcome to the Fanatomy podcast. My guest today, Mr. Aaron Say, that's you. Um, basically, uh, I just <laughs> I just wanted to bring you in and, and talk about... Um, you know, Seventh Circle and your archive project and like what was Seventh Circle before, you know, like, let's just start there. Like, can you tell me a little bit about who you are, Aaron, and what you do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So for anybody out there that, that you know, doesn't know me, uh, I am a huge, huge music fan. Uh, I live in Denver, Colorado, and for the last what is this 2021 so like eight and a half years ish um i've been running most aspects of a diy music venue called seven circle music collective and we in pre-covid times obviously uh book about five shows a week and run as many shows every week and it's a wild wild time <laughs> uh somewhat overwhelming at times but it's great we uh we opened as seven circle in september of 2012 and in the time between september 2012 and march 2020 when we shut down for the foreseeable future uh we ran somewhere in the neighborhood of 1750 to 1800 shows and it was a whirlwind and then when everything shut down i was just kind of like whoa, I can just like breathe. And I didn't realize how fast I'd been moving for the last seven and a half years at that point. And uh, yeah, so I don't know. For me, COVID's been a nice relaxation from the the hustle and grind of running the venue every day. <laughs> but um, other than that, I, uh, I started going to shows in 2001 uh, when I was 15 and fell in love with punk music right around that same time and uh, just went to tons and tons of shows and started filming shows in 2004 just for literally no other reason than 
this band is amazing and I want to record this performance because it's a moment of magic, you know? And so I started doing that just here and there. I think I shot four shows in 2004 and like, I don't know, 30 or 40 shows in 2005. And then starting in 2006, I kind of started filming basically every show that I was at, unless the band or the venue said that I couldn't. And so since then, you know, I mean, that's what, 14 years of filming every show that I went to. And then especially after I had my own venue, it was like, well, I'm, of course, going to record every show there that I'm at. And so uh, it got to the point that the archive was incredibly overwhelming and unmanageable. And just there were boxes and boxes and boxes of tapes all over the house. And there was no organization to them whatsoever. And, you know, people were going, oh, I want to get that show. And I'm just like, cool. I have no idea where it is. You know, you know, you know that experience. There's still I a show yours I'm looking for. It still hasn't popped up, but it will. I promise. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, so during this whole period of, of shutdown, one of the things that I've occupied my time with is finally pulling out all of those tape boxes and starting the process of organizing them chronologically and making sure everything is properly labeled because there are definitely some tapes from over the years that just somehow didn't get labeled probably because I was moving too fast trying to be at three shows in a night and it was you know no time to label a tape just got to keep shooting (laughs) and uh so it's a huge process ahead of me but uh I figured out that an easy way to manage it and also to kind of like you know, sort of compensate me for the time it's going to take to organize this and process some of the shows is I started a Patreon this week uh, to, you know, have people, if they want to contribute a couple bucks a month, then, you know, they get to see some extra shows that I'll release or whatever. So it's kind of an easy way to manage it. So it's not just a total free for all of people Facebook messaging me and texting me and just, all, you know, all the random forms of communication saying, I want this show or I want this show. You know, it's like I've got it all streamlined into an email inbox now in the Patreon. So it makes it way easier to find stuff and to keep track of what I need to find. Um, so that's been occupying the last month or so of my life. But uh, other than that, I mean, I don't know. I guess that's kind of the rundown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> oh, Something like that. Wow. We figured out as far as as far as numbers and statistics go, we figured out that there is the rough estimate that over the years I've probably filmed somewhere in the neighborhood of like 4,000 shows, which means that it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of like 10 to 13,000 individual sets from bands because there are probably three or four bands at every show. So uh, that's the numbers that we're looking at, and that's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of like 7,000 tapes because every tape probably has two bands on it. Um so that's, you can get an idea of what my house looks like right now, because <laughs> I've pulled them all out of the boxes and they're all over the place, getting organized in lines of <laughs> chronological dates. And it's a wild time. <laughs> I've seen, yeah, man, I like, I've seen the photos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. You know, and it's, and it's incredible. You know, I didn't, you know, for a long time, I just, I guess I just didn't really understand the scope so i i kind of want to like just circle back a little bit and rein it in because you know we're at a point where i could be like okay that's aaron say everyone like there he goes right um, but uh <laughs> you know so for you know for for the for the ones listening um yeah, <laughs> clearly there's a reason that i wanted to talk to you right. and uh you know you're, you're so 
one thing, um, and I'm going to save this for a second in a second, but um, so I could choose, you know, if I wanted to, I could have a venue owner on here. Sure. We could talk about when the venue opened, what bands have played there, what kind of bands usually play at this venue. <laughs> but Aaron Say is not <laughs> your typical <laughs> venue owner. And, you know, like, that's it. So there it's, you know, I'm not going to like psychologically analyze the dude or anything, but, you know, you're sitting right now. Um, so this podcast oh. isn't going to have an element. <laughs> uh, it's not going to have a visual element quite yet. Uh, we're going to figure that out in the long run. But um, right now I can see on our little um, recording app that you are sitting in front of a wall of T-shirts. <laughs> Can you? Okay, so I forgot about that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> All right, so we're off to yet another break. archivist detail to come up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here we are, Adrian and and Aaron, clearly like good friends that like go way back for a long time, and you know, so we we definitely do know each other. But um, you know, I I could have talked to to anybody who owns a venue, but like the reason I want to talk to you is because you have such a huge passion for music and am i correct in thinking that all if not 99 percent of those t-shirts behind there behind you there are band t-shirts oh yeah they all are uh, so that you've you've gotten them and not like not typically you know like i don't think i've ever seen you post about ordering a shirt online i'm sure you have <laughs> but most of these shirts are from shows yeah. <laughs> and you are standing, but you are sitting in front of like a mountain of t-shirts. Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, we've got the archivist thing where you've been videotaping every show that you've been to since 2006. If you, if you could, um, you're sitting in front of a wall of t-shirts that you've accumulated over the years, not from ordering online, but going to shows and buying them. And from what I know of personal experience with Aaron Say is so Aaron Say runs Seven Circle Music Collective, but Aaron will go to you will you will go to like three or four different shows a night if you can, like back and forth across town, different venues, speeding in your van without shoes, of course, because that's oh, the yes. Aaron Say brand. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the same the same pair of zip off pants uh and a one of like 1500 or like 2000 shirts or some shit and mm -hmm. you know so i just think you're a very interesting person and a lot of people need to know who you are and like i i think you know just for the novelty of like look how much this dude loves music and here's the kicker folks doesn't play an instrument doesn't right. sing, never been in a band. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Does not, but knows more about musicians and the life and touring and like just working with venue staff and talking to, to venue people and like working out sound details and lighting details and load in times and tour managing. Like it's, it's the list of bands that you have taken all over the country in your van is you know i mean like you're known in denver for being the guy that people hit up if they don't have a tour van hey me uh because we were gonna go on tour together um in may 
uh, with Flagwagon, less than Jake and Mast Intruder, and Plasma Canvas, and it was going to be awesome. And then the end, end of the world happened. Um, but naturally, yeah. you know. But uh, you're you're <laughs> you're sort of known as the guy who like will take your band on tour if he believes in you, and you believe in fucking everyone. And it's it's really <laughs> it's just really cool because you know you have this sort of almost endless tap of like encouragement for for emerging artists and um you know it really helped me out to just get those air and say pep talks like whenever whenever you were just like having a bad show or no one showed up or like you know or like the door didn't get anything and you know like you're always the person that's like trying to lift up musicians and the fact that you've done so much tour managing um, you know, I, I, you work with like a bunch of really big bands, but you also work with like some really small bands that are just, you know, you work with everyone from like flogging Molly and the bunny gang to, you know, to, um, like just your, the local band that's like played a few shows over the last couple months and wants to like head out to California for a few dates and like play some living rooms. <laughs> Did you hear that knocking sound? Uh, vaguely. What was it? Oh, my cat, my cat, ah, kitty friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. PJ, <laughs> my so I have a cat. Her name is PJ Harvey Dent, and Amazing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because like I, you know, we got the kitty, and uh, she has like a little black stripe down her face, kind of like uh, sort of a two face thing. And I was like, can we call her Harvey? Oh and God, so Nova cute. was Nova. My partner was like, P, like PJ Harvey, and I was like, well, we can't. I can't say no to that. Yeah. Like I was thinking, something else. <laughs> I was thinking Harvey Dent, like two face, but is. like you know. So we called her PJ Harvey Dent. She's That's incredible. Heart. That's awesome. <laughs> but well, anyway, she can be our guest. She can be our guest knocker on the show. Yeah, she was like um, <laughs> she does this thing where like she'll she'll like go to like scratch an itch, but she'll be like leaning up against a wall and it'll just go. And it's just it's pretty funny. <laughs> We're definitely oh, leaving this great. in the interview, by the way. Oh, yes, it's got to it's got to stay. Um, yeah, no edits here. Just pure honesty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Incredible, <laughs> incredible stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, y'all can't see it, but every now and then our uh, producer, Johnny, will just like turn his video camera on and do something to make us laugh. And uh, I think that's <laughs> yeah, like, you know, here he is just like waving his hands around like a goof. Um, that's uh that's pretty that's pretty par for the course. I think that's how it's going to go. I'm just going to be trying to to do my my gig over here and Johnny's going to just make me laugh and throw me off. And we're both going to we're all going to just like giggle at my cat. You know, gotta get nothing done. Whatever, man. I'm talking to one of my friends I'm talking to two of my friends. It's just one yeah. of them's lurking like a weirdo. <laughs> I like that Johnny's working on this program with me because, you know, I've known him for a couple of years and he's come to a bunch of shows and, you know, he's all, he's always been very passionate about local music and stuff too. So it's, it's cool to have him helping out with the show and it's, it's cool to have you on Aaron in front of your wall of t-shirts. Uh, yes. What, what t-shirt are you, are you wearing right now? Uh, so actually funny. This enough, is the only time I'm ever going to feel okay with asking someone what they're wearing. <laughs> <laughs> so uh right now i'm actually wearing an old afi shirt ah. uh it is from the 2017 tour they did with circus survive when they played at red rocks 
and that was one of the greatest nights of my entire life. But the the t-shirt wall, which we should explain to anybody who uh, is not aware. Yes. Yes. Uh, another ahead. project that I have embarked upon, in addition to this whole <laughs> ridiculous archiving of all the show tapes that I've shot, is that uh, in late 2019, uh, I decided to organize and alphabetize all the t-shirts that I've gotten from bands over the years. And starting on January 1st, 2020, I it was basically the plan was to start at the beginning of the alphabet and count how many shirts I have by counting the days. Because it would be boring to just count the shirts, you know. And so every day I'm just wearing a different shirt, but I'm wearing them in alphabetical order. And before you freak out, no, it has not been 400 days and I'm still on AFI. Uh, yesterday's <laughs> shirt was uh, very thick and uh, not terribly comfortable. And so I, confession, I cheated. I threw it on for the photo op for the post. And then I threw a more comfy shirt back on to <laughs> ride out the rest of the night. And I just put that on when I got out of bed today. So it's still on. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so this shirt, this AFI shirt, technically got worn and showcased in this T-shirt endeavor. Uh, sometime last year in 2020, but we still are only on B, and today's shirt is a band called Black Table, who played at Seven Circle uh, at some point. I've, I have the date written down somewhere. Um, so, as soon as so, I so finish just this the, podcast, just and I get clear, up to leave the house, I'm going to be wearing a t-shirt of a band called Black Table. But yes, we are 400 days in to this endeavor, and we are only on the word black. As far is, as is the T-shirt what, band names go, that's so, the day we're that's on. Where we're at. Is, is is four hundred? Yeah, I think I think we're at day four hundred and one right now. I think. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. I can look. I have them all written down. So the other part is that uh, you know, in addition to just like wearing these and counting the days, um, it's, it's you know, I posted something about this on my Facebook last November or no, no November twenty nineteen when I decided I was going to do this thing. Ah, today's day number four hundred and two. Yesterday was day 401. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, I mean, a whole bunch of people were just like, oh, my God, I need you to post your po photo of the shirt every single day because we got to all be along for the ride on this journey. And right. so every single day I've been posting since January 1st of 2020, every single day I've been posting a T-shirt photo and then an actual photo of me wearing it wherever I ended up that day, too. Um, so it's been really fun and it's been a really fun way to document and give some kind of purpose to the fact that I've collected this many band shirts over the years. Uh, and it's also been really fun because in addition to just posting the photo of me wearing the shirt, I also have been like writing a story about that band or the show the shirt came from or whatever. So it's been almost like I'm writing an entire autobiography based on a daily shirt story. And so who knows, maybe someday I'll just re-grab all those shirt stories and put them in chronological order, and that'll be my autobiography. And I just wrote it day by day over the years. So we'll see. But yeah, I don't know how long it's going to take. I was assuming it would at least take a few years, but the fact that we're already on day 402 and we're only on the band Black Table, I kind of feel like it might be longer. People have started the hashtag decade of the shirt instead of year of the shirt. <laughs> so uh, we'll see if uh, it actually takes 10 years. I hope it doesn't because that would be absolutely ridiculous. I can't imagine being 45 and still wearing the end of the alphabets band shirts that I got when I was a teenager or whatever. But... We'll see. I'm in it now. and I'm not going to stop. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, ever the archivist, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's Absolutely. It's, it's it's amazing that, you know, you've 
I mean, the fact that because I remember when they weren't even alphabetized, like I remember oh, yeah. when your shirts were just there. Oh, it was a train wreck. Yeah, it was just like the tapes. <laughs> it was just a pile. It was a literal mountain. I mean, what you see not not that the audience can see it, but what you're seeing behind me is actually shelves that mm-hmm. the shirts are in and they're all in order. But it used to be like after I ran out of dresser, sh- that dresser space and shelf space, but shirts kept being acquired. It was like there was a literal mountain at one point. And like I would have bands that played at Seven Circle come and stay at my house because they needed a place to crash. And like I remember one time there was a band playing at Seven Circle and, you know, I asked if they needed a place to stay and they said yes. And, uh, you know, they were like, oh, cool. Like I can't come back. I can't wait to come back to your house. Do you still have that giant mountain of T-shirts in your basement? And I was like, yeah, I do. It's it's a little taller than it was last time you were over. But uh, yeah, it's been really fun to like actually organize it. And it's been so cool because like. My dad's like super crafty and he's an artist. And so when I started this, he was just like, oh, we got a bunch of scrap wood laying around. I'm just going to make you a bunch of shelves. And so he made all these shelves out of like old other things that were made of wood that I don't know what they were. But uh, yeah, it's been it's been it's been cool. It's like a family affair. So, (laughs) yeah. So, I mean, like the craftiness and and the 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 need to do good and and help other people. That seems to be a hereditary thing. Absolutely. (laughs) Yep. hundred percent. Both of my parents are so incredibly supportive of everything. I mean, they're they're liking the Instagram posts of the shirts every day and they love reading the stories because they're like, I never knew you did that at that show or whatever. You know, it's just like, yeah, it was it was one of four thousand shows, you know, but uh, yeah, it's almost like a way for it's almost like a way for your parents to get to know who you were the whole time you were just (laughs) gone going to shows. Yeah, literally. (laughs) It's so funny. (laughs) But yeah, they're great. They're super, super supportive of everything. They've been super supportive of Seventh Circle. I mean, uh, the day of our grand opening show at the venue, they brought down a grill from our house and grilled burgers and hot dogs out in the patio for everybody during the show. So it's uh, it's always been a really, really, really good relationship and really supportive uh, scenario. So shout out to both my parents for being amazing, because none of this would really be happening, honestly, if they weren't. So, yeah. And I think, you know, speaking of like family and the venue and like just taking care of each other. There's, you know, I think there's a huge reason why people keep coming back to Seventh Circle and why, you know, it has such a reverence in so many people's hearts, you know, across like decades, decades of age spanning. And like, I know that before Seventh Circle, you know, it was another venue and I don't, I don't know exactly. It was Blastomat before Seventh Circle. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, from what I recall, like there was a dude that lived there or something like it was it was just like a house where someone lived and there were shows. Yeah, yeah. The story with the venue is just really cool because it, it you know, the, it's like a, you know, if you if you've been to a bunch of seven circle shows, you're not necessarily family with every single other person in the room, but like it's everyone's living room, you know, like right. everyone's basement, everyone's garage. And like, that's why, you know, it didn't shut down during the pandemic is because so many people cared about this little shithole. Right. And Absolutely. like, you know, it's everyone's favorite shithole. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, seven, seven circle is a shithole. That is why we love it. And, right. you Absolutely. know, but it's it's the shithole where like, you know, what was it like Agent Orange came and played and like people went nuts and it was like the it was the show banner for like years. Yeah, you know, yeah. it was like the it was the banner on the Facebook events for years. Um, yeah. Like, hey, let's make this show go this crazy. 
Um, huge shows have happened and like the entire inside of the venue and the outside is just crammed with people. And like, you know, I've been to those shows, but I've also been to the shows where it's desolate. And like Mm -hmm. there is there are two people working the door and the only people that are there are the other bands and you Mm -hmm. and uh, and hopefully Aaron. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But that's the thing about Seven Circle. I mean, like that that's the case for any venue. But, you know, people people really love the place because it's it's where we've all started out. You know, the very first day I moved to Colorado, I played a show at Seven Circle and it's been my home ever since so every time we do an album release show we have to do one at seventh circle at least you know if we're gonna do one in here or there it's gotta we gotta do one down there but it's not necessarily like a family oriented venue you're not fucking chuck e cheese but you know but it's all ages you know like that's exactly there's there's it's the balance between being a gritty punk rock venue and being chuck e cheese you know like being somewhere where like the parents are actually comfortable dropping their teenagers off to go to shows. We maintain a good, safe environment so that kids can actually come to shows and experience music properly in their formative years and that kind of thing, you know. Can you imagine, like, being a, you know, a suburban parent just, like, you know, working a Joe job and then you, like, drive up to this venue that your kid wants to be dropped off at and you're like, you are not getting out of this car. Exactly, (laughs) yeah. You're going to get tetanus. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, it's, it's just... As soon as you get to know anything about the venue, you realize it's run by kids mostly right. like, yeah. you know, like they're, you know, people of all ages run seven circle. It's not like an ageist thing, but, you know, there's there's a lot of youth culture around that place because punk rock is for the young. And right. um, but it just kind of um, circles back to what you were saying about, like, you know, it being like a, a family thing to just like take care of other people and be creative and encourage other people to do good and so i just i thought that that was really cool how it also reflects on the venue itself and the way that you've always ran it and um it just seems like a a vibe that hangs over seventh circle it's like this place is a shithole but it can be your shithole if you want to just treat everyone with respect yep that's it that's all that's (laughs) that's everything that's it For people that only know Seven Circle as Seven Circle, I think it's really important to know where we come from. So, um, basically, for anybody that hasn't been there, it's set up as just a little house and a detached garage. And we've transformed it into a space where the garage has a permanent stage and PA system and lighting, and that's the venue room. And then uh, the house portion is like the main entrance lobby area and the front desk where you pay for the show and we also have a record store in there where you can shop for cool local bands music and uh it's just a really cool space to kind of hang out in there's an arcade game machine outside the bathroom that you can play and uh that's also where bands set up their merch it's where i've gotten countless t-shirts from is that room um but anyway yeah so before it was seven circle it was called blastomat and it was Pretty much this, the same layout, same similar operation. Um, but the difference was that people lived in the house and there were a couple of rooms in the house that were off limits because it was just their house and they were just throwing shows in their garage, you know. And so all throughout Blastomat, people lived there and it was really cool because it was this really tight knit community of punks. And over the six years that it was Blastomat, it changed hands a few times. And but it was always the same group of people, you know, someone would move out, someone else would move in. 
but it was always the same group of people. So the venue always stayed the same and it was really cool. It was really consistent. And they did some of the best shows I've ever been to were blast on that shows. And it was incredible. And I started going there in 2006 and fell in love with it and just started going there to as many shows as I could. And then by summer of 2009 ish, they were kind of starting to need more people to volunteer and help run the shows like more people than just their little circle of people that live there and were close knit, you know, because it got to the point that they were having so many shows that it was more than that small group of people really wanted to handle as far as working the shows goes. And so they just put it out into the community like, you know, we need more more people to help volunteer and run shows. And so I jumped on that and started volunteering for shows officially in the spring of 2010, um, just running sound or running door, you know, whatever was needed. And uh started booking shows occasionally here and there, like, you know, just, I don't know, once a month, maybe, you know, not, not that many shows, but you know, it was cool to like sort of become a part of this place that I just revered so much. I mean, that place was hallowed ground for me even before I started volunteering, you know? And so to become a part of it was really, really cool. And then did that very happily for a couple of years. And then, uh, in the summer of 2012, the people that were living there at that time uh, had decided they were going to move out and there was nobody else left in that little circle of people that was at that time willing and able to move in and keep the venue running as it was. Right. And so they all kind of were like, well, I guess that's it then. You know, we had a good run. Um, it was fantastic. You know, we had hundreds and hundreds of really, really cool shows and, you know, it's time for us all to, I guess, you know, move to the next chapter of our lives and, not live at a punk venue anymore, basically. And I mean, all of them stayed in the scene. They still, you know, the guy that lived there last still books shows. He's in a really, really good band that tours a bunch. And, you know, they're all still very active, but nobody's actually like living at the punk rock DIY venue anymore. And so at that time, when they said they were going to shut it down, uh, myself and a couple other people who were volunteers from kind of the outside of that circle who had come in, like I did in 2010, uh, basically we're just like, well, God, if it's going to go away, I mean, would you guys be okay with us kind of stepping in and maybe taking it over? Because, like, we're at a point in our lives that we've never lived at a punk venue and we, you know, aren't burned out about it or whatever. Like, you know, we would we would like the opportunity to sort of try to keep this thing going and keep the spirit alive and keep the venue because it's perfect. I mean, the layout of it is perfect. The location is perfect. Like. It's just such serendipity that that place ended up becoming what it did. Yeah, it's and, like right off the highway, too. Right. I know the access is easy and it's in an industrial neighborhood, so we don't have a noise curfew. Like everything yep. about it is fucking perfect. And so basically, you know, after like a couple of weeks of back and forth conversation about it, you know, they were essentially like, yeah, if you guys want to take it over, go nuts. Um, we would just ask that you change the name because we know it's going to be a bit of a different entity than Blastomat was. And we kind of want Blastomat to go out on our terms. And, you know, we're all going to be starting to book shows elsewhere under new names and new venues. And so it's only right that this place has a new name and a new start, you know. And we were like, cool, fair, of course, you know, like the last thing we were trying to do was like ride Blastomat's coattails and turn it right. into something that it wasn't, you know. And so it worked out great. They had the last Blastomat show, August 25th, 2012. And then as of September 1st, the building technically became ours and they were super cool about facilitating the the transfer over with the landlord and all that. And like, it was just so smooth. And so for those first three weeks of September, we just kind of 
just overhauled the place in a lot of ways that we wanted to, um, just because at that point, what we decided was that none of us wanted to move in and none of us wanted to live there. But we also kind of figured if no one's living there, we could do way more shows because nobody's going to get tired of having a show going on above their head every single night because they're trying to go to bed, you know? Right. And so we figured if we have no one live there, we could do shows every single night. And as long as we have enough volunteers to like not have the same person have to work every single show, nobody will burn out and this will be fantastic. And so we started just booking any and every show that we possibly could. And it got to the point that by March 2013, I think that month we had three nights off at the venue that entire month. And that almost kind of killed some of us. And it was just like, okay, maybe we need to put a cap on this. And so we started doing only six shows a week instead of seven. And then that was still too much. So we scaled it back to five. And then we've been operating at five shows a week since then. Um, But yeah, it took off. It was great. It took three weeks for us to kind of rearrange it so it wasn't a living space anymore and turn it into the record store and, you know, expand, expand the record store that Blastomat already had and just you know, reroute the like human flow to the bathroom because it wasn't going through a bedroom anymore, that kind of thing. And uh, then we grand opened as Seventh Circle on September 22nd, 2012, and we've just been going strong ever since. So that's that's the history of it. And it's just, I mean, God, Blastomat was just amazing. And it was such a perfect place and such a formative era for me, you know, and just the fact that, like, I, there are sometimes, like, because, you know, it's got such a different face now. There's so many different posters and different graffiti and stuff like yeah. that. It's very, very different now visually than it was when it was Blastomat. But occasionally I'll be standing some in some room there and I'll see a glimpse of something on the wall. It's like a Blastomat era flyer or a Blastomat right. era piece of graffiti that's like poking out from behind something. And I'm just like, it's like a whirlwind just like takes me back to the feeling of like, being at Blastomat and it just kind of like hits me like a truck and I'm just like oh my god like this place that I fell in love with is kind of mine now and that's insane yeah. to think about like I love the fact that because like even back when it was Blastomat you know like I was always kind of thinking like I love this place but man it would be so cool if I had like my own venue like this and then I ended up with the venue becoming my own you know and it was just it was to die for and it's been the best thing I've ever done hands down in my whole life and, uh, yeah, I'm going to get all sentimental because we haven't had shows in 11 months. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I totally get that. And it's cool that you have always had such a reverence for the space. And, yeah. you know, that basically Seven Circle just it happened because you were already like in love with Blastomat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know 100%. that like that's exactly why. And, you know, I'm I'm a transplant here to, to Colorado, so like I don't go back to the Blastomat days. But like I know that among people who have lived here their whole lives or, you know, lived here for a very long time, that uh, there's there's some like preciousness about the past. And we all have like those nostalgic things where, you know, like people who loved emo in the 90s love the clarity record by jimmy Eat world and people my <laughs> age you know who were teenagers in the in the mid 2000s we love futures like the futures clarity right. <laughs> today, you know? like i could talk about jimmy Eat world all day and i probably yeah. will on a future episode of this oh yeah but... that sounds fun i'll tune into that one for sure <laughs> <laughs> um anyway what I, what I was saying about uh the venue and how it became seventh circle was because you were so 
in love with Blastomat and you'd been going there for years and you were a passionate volunteer and you really, you and like, um, you know, I guess whoever else was in the venture with you when you first started seven circle was just like, Hey, well, uh, we, we, we don't want this to die. So let's breathe some new life into it and make it a new thing. And, you know, so for those who have never been to seven circle music collective, there is an iconic mammoth tapestry painting um that sits at the back of the stage and everyone who's ever played at seven circle has had the honor of having that awesome like mammoth behind you and uh it's it's just a really cool piece of of uh local venue history i think to have that like really cool looking thing behind you that's like you don't know. It doesn't say Seven Circle Music Collective. It doesn't say like, you know, the venue name. It's just like, if you know, you know. And I think that's really rad. But I remember, you know, when we were filming um, the recent live stream that we did together, I actually like I noticed that it wasn't painted on the wall and it wasn't secured to the wall. Really, it was just hanging up in front of the wall and I lifted it up and there was the stark black and white, white paint on a black wall, Blastomat logo, which is like the circle B. And it's yep. made to look like it's made to look like the circle E, the tilted E for equality. Right. Um, but it's uh, it's it's a circle B for Blastomat. <laughs> and yep. uh, and yeah, I just remember thinking like, wow, that's that's super cool. Yeah. And I mean, that's why that mammoth is a tapestry, because I was there was no way in hell I was going to let anybody paint over that Blastomat B. Right. Because that's that's huge. I mean, that Blastomat B is just as iconic as the mammoth for Seven Circle is, you know, it's the same thing. It's the same concept. And and that Blastomat B is like you said, it's in the background of every video and every photo that ever got taken of a band playing at Blastomat. And so when it came time for us to take the venue over and turn it into something else, it was like, well, we can't just leave the Blastomat be on the wall because that's theirs. But I was like, we have to keep that, though. So it was just like, all right, cool. Let's just put a piece of canvas over it. And then it will just be this little time capsule relic that nobody knows about unless they lift up the canvas. And then somebody was like, cool, I'll paint something on the canvas. And it was like, all right, cool. And they just painted the mammoth. And then it was like, well, that's our logo now. So Mm -hmm. that's how that that's how that came about. But I'm stoked that you looked at that. It's so funny because, yeah, not a lot of people know that there's anything of note behind the mammoth canvas. So. Yeah, I'm just I'm just uh, un- unveiling all of the seven circle Easter eggs today. Hey, that's good. That's good. Anybody that tunes in, you get to hear the Easter eggs. Go you. Thanks for being here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yes, Blastomat was hallowed ground. And it's been like a super honorary thing for me to be able to have even, you know, set foot in the place, much less volunteered there, much less take it over and kind of make it my own, <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. It's, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing venue that you've turned yeah. it into over the years that it's naturally sort of evolved into. Right. Um, right. You know, I mean, and I, I love that it's like sort of an all ages, it's known that it's an all ages space and that it's, you know, like we don't tolerate bullshit there. I say we, because I feel like a part oh, of your part of it. Absolutely. Family. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, and we don't we don't tolerate transphobia or racism or sexism or like glass. <laughs> no glass. Yeah, because the floor is cement and I like to be barefoot. So please don't drop a bottle. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> it was funny. I was importing a show the other night, some old show video from the venue, and I heard a glass bottle drop on the floor. I wasn't even watching it. I was just listening to it while I was importing it from across the room. And I heard a glass bottle drop, and immediately I was just like, no glass. And I was like, wait, I'm not there. <laughs> <laughs> It was so funny. It's just such a knee-jerk reaction to just be like, hey, who the fuck dropped that? Stop it. Put that away. Get that out of here. Put that in the dumpster now. So you're like, you're you're working on stuff on your computer and you hear a glass bottle break over your like earbuds and then the you speaker just, system, yeah. Like, who the fuck did that? Of course. That sounds just like you. It was so funny. Oh my god. Yeah. Well, <laughs> should we get into uh, the band that we we're can? Here absolutely. To... I think we've I think we've done you know what forty five minutes of history. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've done we've done a hell of a lot as to like who Aaron say is the local archivist that has like written down every show that he can remember being at. Um, oh yeah, has... that's another thing we didn't mention. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You've you've written down. Every but, band I've ever seen, ever. Every live set. And that's... Wow, dude. <laughs> like, that's something that you could... You know, so another thing that people don't know about you is, like, you you don't, like, drink or use drugs or anything like that. Right. That's definitely something that only, like, a sober archivist-minded person who loves music and punk rock could do. <laughs> is, like, yeah. remember every single show you ever went to and write it all down in chronological order. Yeah. Like, the archivist, man. Like, the Absolutely. punk rock archivist that we need. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. I'm glad, it's... glad to be. Super cool. Well, um... I'm breaking the rules on this show, and that's totally fine because it's mine. And that and rules rhymed. are made to be broken anyway, so it's fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but typically, you know, I, I want to talk to other musicians um, about their favorite musicians. But, you know, I've sort of like expanded my definition of what I want this to be is like, I want this to be like a show where about learning, where like we can talk to, where I can talk to other musicians and creative people about their you know and we're definitely going to talk about music because that's the language that i speak but like sure of course you know um i would like to just talk to creative people who who make art about their favorite influences and and what kind of made them the type of creative person that they are and um you know i for as long as i've known you you have been really into this band called afi or mm -hmm. short for a fire inside. Yep. And this is the podcast where you come to nerd out about AFI, my dude. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> so, <laughs> welcome. Welcome to the uh, Fanatomy podcast for the third time. Where did uh, where did you first hear AFI? Like, what do you remember the first time experiencing their music? Yeah. So um, they have a 30 second song on a compilation record of 101 30-second songs by 101 different bands. It's called Short Music for Short People. And <laughs> um, it, uh, it came out, God, it had to have been 1999 or 2000. Uh, no, 99, because it fits in between, chronologically that song goes between uh, the... Black Sails in the Sunset album and the All Hallows EP, which were released in 
May of 99 and October of 99, respectively. So here we go. We're nerding out already. Um, but anyway, yeah, so it was this punk rock comp record that my friend got, and we just listened to all 100 songs, and, you know, there were some that stuck out to us that were like, that, who's that? I want to look that band up. And some that were just like, that was not good. I don't want to look that band up, you know. But the AFI song was one of them that stuck out for us. And um, so... We looked them up and we found out that they had just recently released because we, di- we didn't get the comp record when it was new. And then it was this was like 2001, it had to be, or maybe 2002. But at, anyway, either way, at the time, their most recent album was The Art of Drowning, um, which came out in 2000. And so my friend found like basically I, I had these two or three friends that like every weekend we were just driving downtown to Denver and going to the record stores and just like finding music to collect and just getting into music that way because it was before you know the internet had music on it basically <laughs> and uh so we we went to Wax Tracks which is one of the greatest record stores that Denver has and uh my friend found the Art of Drowning record on vinyl and bought it and I, it was either summer or like every weekend we were all just like staying at one of our houses and just having these adventures and slumber parties and whatnot. And, uh, I remember there was a period of time when we all like three or four of us were just like staying at my house for like days on end and just, you know, having high school shenanigan adventures in my backyard or whatever. But I remember we had that record on the turntable, like over and over again, just on repeat, flip it and flip it and flip it and flip it and start it out, you know? started over when it ends and just fell in love with that record and that band and then uh went backwards from there discovering all the previous material um and for anybody out there who's unfamiliar with old AFI or AFI in general uh they started out as a very raw almost like skate punk kind of sounding band and they released two albums of that style in 95 and 96 and then they went a little more hardcore and released Shut Your Mouth and Open Your Eyes in 97. Um, and then they went even darker and a little more gothy and like almost like horror punk misfitsy influence uh, for the next two albums, which were Black Sails and Art of Drowning. And then uh, they really hit the mainstream and broke uh, in 2003 with Sing the Sorrow, which was a lot more of a more mainstream consumable sounding album. Most of it was slower than all their previous material, just tempo wise. And, uh, it had like the perfect amount of pop influence to just like be way more of a mainstream hit album. And that propelled them into the big time. And then they've been releasing albums ever since as well. But yeah, so Sing the Sorrow was the first album that they released after we got into them. And I remember just the days and weeks leading up to that release date, we were just chomping at the fucking bit to get that record. And the day that it came out, uh, we, on our lunch break, this was 2003, uh, March 11th. And on our lunch break, instead of going to get lunch, we drove to the nearest CD store to our high school and bought the new AFI album and then listened to it on the way back to school. And it was just a fucking religious experience getting to do that and getting to have that record or that CD on the day that it came out. And then, of course, I was on the hunt for it on vinyl, too. And the vinyl pressing had been delayed or something and didn't actually drop at stores the same day the CD came out. And so every day I was calling Wax Tracks like, 
did you get that record in yet? Did you get that record in yet? And I think they got annoyed with me. So I was calling every day. And then mm. eventually a week or two later, they were like, yep, we got it. And I was like, ah, and so I drove down there and I got it. And it was like 1298. And now that record goes for like 200 plus dollars on eBay. And it's ridiculous. And I love, I still have the price tag that says 1298 on my wall with the little sing the sorrow AFI on the sticker. It was it like, it, so and that was cool. the vinyl. Uh huh. Yeah. Double LP, double LP what? for 1298. Yeah. Isn't that ridiculous? I guess it was 2003. 2003. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, double LP, super good, gatefold packaging, red, clearish vinyl. It's beautiful. And it's still one of my absolute most treasured possessions that I have. The whole AFI discography, though, is such a treasure, treasured possession for me. I'm missing one 7-inch from the collection one original pressing seven inch uh it's a live seven inch called eddie picnics all wet that they recorded in who 90 something 96 maybe um but there are only like 200 copies of it so it always goes for super expensive and they read like some label reissued it and it's like kind of an unofficial release and of course i found that and i got that but like that one original seven inch pressing is the one that eludes me still because it's always, you know, a couple hundred bucks or whatever. And so I'm just waiting. I'm just biding my time and waiting to like figure out when, when I can come upon it for the least expensive money possible, you know? And it's funny actually, cause I did that. The most expensive record I've ever bought was AFI's first seven inch that they ever released. And there are only 200 copies of that one too. But since it's the first release they ever put out, it's the most sought after AFI collectible, you know? And legitimately, when I first started looking for it, it was on eBay for like $850 for a three song seven inch. And I was just like, I can't really justify doing that, but I'm just going to keep hunting, you know? And so I kept an eBay save search for it so that anytime anyone posted one, it would send me an email. And every time it was like an $800 buy it now or like, you know, like a $500 starting bid or whatever. And I was just like, <laughs> I'm never going to have this record. And then eventually, like seven years later, someone posted one and it was kind of that same deal. But I noticed that their eBay username was an AFI reference. And I was like, oh, my, my, my kindred spirits. And so I messaged him and I was just like, hey, no pressure, but I saw the dork EP that you put up. And I saw your username, and so obviously you know what it is, and you know what you have, and you know how much this band means to you if you made your eBay username based on their their lyrics or whatever it was. And I was like, I'm in the same boat. I'm a huge fan. I've been looking for this record for seven years. If you would be at all willing to come down in price, that would be sweet, but no pressure. If not, do your thing. And they got back to me, and they were like, I can let it go for 500 because that's how much I paid for it, but I can't go lower than that. And I was just like, kind of feel like I got to do this right now because I'm never going to have this opportunity did again. You do it? So I did it. I did it. $500. Oh, yeah. I spent $500 on a three song, seven inch. And that is the only time I've ever, ever seen that record available for that much. You know, every, literally every other time it's been at least 700, 750. And I was just like, so glad I did that. And when that thing came in the mail and I was holding it in my hands, I was just like, oh my God. Like for literally all seven of those years, every time I would go into a record store, I would have this fantasy in my head of just like flipping through seven inches and finding that album for like $3 because the record store didn't know what it was or something, you know, that never happened, of course. But 
even to this day, when I find a new record store, uh, when I'm on tour or whatever, and I walk into it thinking like, oh, what hidden gems am I going to find? It's still that album cover that I see in my head, even though I found it already. <laughs> and it just like, it was such a part of my life for seven years. Like that, that hunt, you know, that hunt is so fun. And then after I finally had it in my hands, it was this amazing feeling of accomplishment. But at the same time, it was like, whoa, there's like this void now over here. Like, <laughs> weird, you know? I'm not hunting for this anymore. I don't need to. But even still, to this day, that is still the record cover I see in my head when I go into a new record store and think about what I might find. And it's just so cool. So that was, yeah, I don't, uh, I'm trying to remember when that was that I found it. It had to have been probably 2009 or 2010 um, because I do remember that it was seven years of searching. And I remember that I made a MySpace post about it, so it would have been before I switched over to wow. Facebook. Wow. <laughs> okay, so... I think I just heard the most Aaron Say story of all Aaron Say stories. And I tell you what, that kind of story right there is the kind of story that I want to have on this podcast. Yeah. These are the kinds of things that I want to talk to people about. It's, Uh you know, like. Okay, yeah, sure, you love this band, but like, did you spend seven years searching for one original pressing of a three song? like ep <laughs> that you spent 500 bucks for finally right. because finally. it was not you were not able to find it for anything you know like i yeah. want to know <laughs> these kinds of stories from people because this is the kind of love that we have for these things and like this is the kind of love that i i want to document and share with people because you know a lot of people have a favorite band or artist and like not to discredit anyone else's but like i've got some favorite bands um, and then there's my favorite band mm-hmm. and, you know, like there's just so much more, I don't know. I'm definitely not doing the, uh, the thing justice right now in trying to describe this feeling, but like, you know how people will be like name five songs, you know, oh, like, yeah. on your, on your t-shirt, you know, like that kind of <laughs> asshole shit, uh-huh. that kind of elitism. I uh-huh. think, you know, that comes from a place of like, well, I love that band and you love that band. You prove to me how much you love that band. Right. I mean, and there's like a whole like misogyny aspect of it, which is like super problematic sure, yeah. and gross. But like, right. I think um, that I, I want this show to be sort of like that, except without any of the the like holier than thouness, you know, right. like no, you know, like there's no elitism. I just want to like hear you talk about your favorite band or your favorite artist and why you love them so much and how you love them so much. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's sort of a and thing. We can that, all just be stoked together. Yeah. Cause I've always wanted to listen to a podcast where like, they talk about the, like the, the stuff that not necessarily the stuff that no one knows, but like, you know, I feel a little weird sometimes about how much I love my favorite bands and like to hear that there's someone out there who like spent seven years looking for one, single and spent $500 (laughs) on it ultimately after looking for it for seven years, going all the way back to the MySpace days. You know, I just, uh, these are the kind of stories that I want to highlight because there is, you know, there, there are so many wonderful things in this world, but, um, for me, the most wonderful thing is, is music. And, and, you know, I mean, not to like, not to like, discount any you know like love and marriage and children sure and of course and all of course. That but stuff, music but like, is just such i mean you can't compare it to anything the feeling that we get people like us get from 
music that we love. It's indescribable. It cannot be put into words, and it is one of the most important things ever. Yeah, yeah. And, you know... I absolutely know what you're saying. I don't know if you've ever met a person like this, but I tend to not, like, know how to talk to them because um, (laughs) the, the kind of person where you're like, well, so what kind of music do you listen to? And they're like, I don't really like music. I just don't know what to say. I don't yeah, know how it's to. Like, uh, cool. Yeah, it's like I'm sure you're well, into something that like makes you really happy and gives your life fulfillment and purpose. Sure. But I don't know what it is, and I don't know how to right. relate to it. Right. Because like the the thing that fulfills my whole life and gives me purpose is music, and mm-hmm. so like I just don't really know how to how to talk about that. You know what I'm what I'm sort of trying to do with this show is to is to highlight these stories about, you know, how much we love our, the, these, these artists and, and, um, and, and <laughs> in what way that might be like a little weird, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's so weird for people that like couldn't imagine spending more than a Spotify account subscription on music. Like shit like this is so weird, you know? Yeah. Like what you spent $500 on a three song, seven inch, like, or you drove, 10 hours to see a band play four and a half songs like what you know like people don't understand that if they're not wired like we are you know yeah it's cool it's okay good for them i'm just glad that we're wired that way (laughs) i yeah and i think there's you know part of the reason that i've always been so like adamant that every band that i'm in have physical media is because like i you know i always loved being a, a, a like a little kid and like you know because i didn't really have much money or like things to do or any friends or anything so i'd sit there and listen to music sitting in front of my boom box with like the headphones plugged into the headphone jack and mm-hmm. uh you know just listening to songs and reading the liner notes yeah. like holding the cassette case or holding the cd case right. i didn't have vinyl because i was like nine but yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> you know just like holding holding the liner notes and looking at those and then later whenever i got a little bit older and got my first like shitty suitcase record player yep um and you know got my first couple vinyls it's like part of the thing that i love about collecting vinyl like you know let's get it out of the way what everyone hates about vinyl like vinyl snobs people that call themselves audiophiles Uh (laughs) you know that's that's corny but like i think there's definitely something to be said about like wanting to pay for a physical thing that you hold in your hands that you know like vinyl is not cheap and i think the reason vinyl had a big comeback after the digital boom was like people like having you know like if you're gonna pay for a record don't you want to like hold something absolutely you know is it just like a transaction on your paypal like right i don't want to look at a little square on my phone that shows me what the album art is i want to hold it in my hand and be able to like to have it be 12 inches square is the greatest format for looking at that art absolutely and you know and this definitely is not like a boomer back in my day kind of sentiment because like i think it's um a lot you know it's i think that's like a kind of an easy way to to like minimize the whole thing is to just say well you know Back in my day or whatever. But like yeah. back in my day, we had CDs, whatever. I, right. I'm like, I'm only 30. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's, I, I think what's cool about, you know, even CDs or cassettes or vinyl, just any kind of physical media is like being able to hold it in your hands and, and look at it. And, uh, you know, the other thing is, is like music has sort of lost its worth now because, 
you know, if you're not hooked within the first three seconds of a song, statistically, like you're not going to listen to the rest of it. Right. Um, like between the first three to 10 seconds of a song is the most important, according to like statistics surrounding Spotify plays and stuff like that. And sure, yeah. you know, first of all, I hate that. I know that I hate that I, I work in an industry and exist in mm-hmm. an industry that makes me know that it's because, discouraging, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it is, especially it, as a songwriter, I'm sure it is because oh, yeah. you've got to think about how to make sure you're going to hook people, even if that compromises your vision of the song to begin with like that, that terrifies me thinking about musicians having to write like that because it's going to compromise the vision. It's going to compromise the heart and soul. Well, and you know, like we, it's, it's sort of liberating in a way because Mm. it's like, you know, no one's, you know, if I'm, you know, I do try to like keep my 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 songs interesting just because I I, I like playing them and having people have fun. But like, you sure, know, yeah, I don't I don't ever write for the Spotify fucking algorithm. Good, <laughs> right? I'm glad. I'm you know, glad. I I think. I mean, that, I wasn't saying you are. I'm just saying I hope that there aren't people out there who are falling into that trap of feeling like they have to. I mean, you know, it. I, I think there's something to be said about like knowing what like being smart and conscious about it, like, especially like, uh, let's take young blood, for example, I, I really, um, have a reverence for like these younger, um, like people, people like young blood and, and Billie Eilish, uh, because like they, like they understand the format that is working right now, which is like, you put out a single, you put out a video with that single and like you blow that single up and that single goes viral on TikTok or, you know, and like, there's nothing wrong with any of this, but like the, the current state of music is very singles driven, mm-hmm. but there's this whole other subset of people making music and touring and pressing records and selling merch. Like it might not be the most lucrative thing in the world, but they're like people like us do it because we, we love making full records and pressing full records and, and like, you know, creating art that way. And it's right. Sure. You know, there are people like Finn McKenty who like I follow and really respect um, who say like, yo man, the, the cycle of like making a 10 song record every two years and touring for like a few months. And then like, um, you know, touring as much as you can and then writing another record, like doing this two year cycle thing is not going to be viable or sustainable. And like, I think a lot of, you know, musicians like us who, you know, like we know that. And that's, yeah. I think that's the thing. Like, you know, you can say the sentiment of it's not about the money, but you know, we all have to make a living. But I think the other right. thing is like, if you know that the Spotify algorithm is like wanting, you know, if, if you know that like, listeners on spotify are going to like listen to you for three to ten seconds and if they're not impressed they're going to skip the song that's kind of like okay well you know the first three to ten seconds of the song will be interesting and so will the rest of it but i'm not going to write this creative song about this life experience that i've had with these melodies that resonate with me for spotify and for streaming services you know i think um there's a lot to be said about holding a you know paying like 20 30 bucks for a chunk of vinyl and spinning it a few times and maybe if you don't like a song or two you they'll grow on you because like you paid for the record you might as well listen to it and like exactly i think that's um it's kind of tragic that that's kind of becoming less and less of a thing now because like the market's kind of flooded 
and you know everyone and their brother like can put out music online and like that's amazing and democratizing and awesome but it's also like you know how do you distinguish yourself you know Mm -hmm. it's sort of a thing where like you really can't and um, if you want to do something special with your music that means a lot to people i think that there's just as much to be said about that as like going viral on on like you know spotify or tiktok sure yeah absolutely you know because it's just it's just a different kind of success and like where your goalposts are and you know what what you want out of your career like i have accepted the fact that we are not gonna we're not gonna blow up like that and i'm honestly okay with that because being sort of an introverted person the reason that i do this podcast from my bedroom and not like a studio is because like i like being in my pajamas and being alone (laughs) totally you know but i i don't really know how i would handle huge amounts of fame anyway so i'm okay with just like making my weird little records and and playing shows and touring and the people who want to be a part of it can but i i did kind of want to circle back to that because uh you know, AFI is obviously your favorite band, and I've got a lot of memories with AFI too. Um, yeah, Sing the Sorrow came out when I was in middle school, okay. and uh, I remember being introduced to the concept of a hidden track because yeah. somebody was like, "So this last song is called But Home Is Nowhere,' and then there's this hidden track, but I don't really know what it's called because it's not listed." And then you know, we I found out years later it was called This Time and Perfect, but like it, um. You know, I, I thought yep. that, that was that was really cool. And just the Sing the Sorrow record like you were talking about is just a hard left turn for what they were doing at the time. Sure. And, you know, they were they were like this hardcore band that's like and like, <laughs> you know, and you were talking about how it's a little bit slower. And that's right. The whole thing is uh, singing the sorrow. It's 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 very like morose and, mm-hmm. and slower and more melodically driven. And there's more space for the songs to sort of breathe and have a cinematic quality to them. And um, yeah. Sing the Sorrow and Burials are my two favorite AFI records because uh, cool. Burials came out like the winter after I had like a horrible breakup. <laughs> and uh, I, um, you know, that's a great record to listen it's to good. when you're just in a bitter, lonely, anxious yep. place. Mm hmm. But um, I wanted to ask, like, what about AFI makes them your favorite band? That is so hard to quantify, honestly, because there's so much, you know, like I, I got into them because they they sounded fast and raw, but also, you know, melodic and thoughtful and so much of the the punk that you know, was just like the general run, like realm of punk rock is, you know, very harsh sounding. The vocals are harsh sounding. And one of my favorite things about AFI, especially their like middle era albums, the thing about their middle era albums, uh, which, you know, for me, the first two that hooked me were The Art of Drowning and Black Sails in the Sunset is there's so much melody and there's so much clean singing instead of screaming. You know, and it took a long time for me to really warm up to harsh vocals and like hardcore music and, you know, thrash metal music with like, you know, metal that has screaming and, you know, growling in it or whatever. Like, it took me a long, long time to warm up to stuff like that. Like, my entrance to music was, or my entrance to heavy music, I should say, was uh, Ozzy and System of a Down. 
both of whom have beautiful voices in their own ways, you know? And then punk came after that. And so AFI was just kind of a natural sort of extension of the like beauty that I liked about a person's voice mixed with the like, you know, really fast, hardcore sort of fervor of punk rock. And even their first two records that are kind of skate punky, it's like, it's more like he's just kind of shouting, you know, there's not a lot of screaming and anything that's really harsh. And their third album, that hardcore album, Shut Your Mouth and Open Your Eyes, has the most sort of like traditional hardcore sounding vocals. And actually, it took me a long time to warm up to that album in particular because of that. And then uh, same with Sing the Sorrow, because there's so much beauty in Sing the Sorrow, but there are those few songs that have the sort of like almost like borderline screamo-esque, screamy hardcore vocal parts. And those songs took longer for me to warm up to as well. And so, and December Underground, because then that was the album that they went like total screamo on in 2006. And that album still is, I mean, I, I love all their records, but I dare say that December Underground may be my least favorite because of how screamo it is, because that's never been a genre that I've really identified with. You know, it's good. I appreciate it. I like it for what it is. But, you know, if I'm choosing to listen to AFI, usually it's not that record, even though I, you know, bought the vinyl on all the formats that it came out on (laughs) and went to see them. Although, actually, honestly, they hardly toured for that album. And I only saw them on that tour cycle once, which I guess is fine. But um, anyway, so, yeah, I think what drew me to them in the first place was just the fact that, you know, it was it had the, the like fast energy of punk rock, but it wasn't abrasive, really. And also just like, just lyrically too, you know, everything that they sing about is so, you know, it's not political, it's not on the nose in any way, it's open to interpretation for sure. And it's almost kind of like the vocals and the melodies and the sound of the voice are more the focus than actually what's being said, at least for me in a lot of ways, you know, like I, and I like a lot of instrumental music too, which is, you know, you can put that that can mean whatever you want because nobody's saying anything to you. And so I think that all those things combined are what drew them drew them drew me to them in the first place. And then when Sing Sara came out and then they toured on it immediately and I finally got to see them play at the Ogden in two thousand three, it was just like one of the greatest shows I've ever seen in my whole life. And then, you know, I kept seeing them. They were also the first band that I traveled out of state to go see. They did the Ogden in um, April of 03, Warp Tour, hit Denver. Uh, they were on Warp Tour that summer. And then they did a fall tour that didn't come to Denver. And so me and my friend drove to Chicago to see them play. And that was the first time that I'd gotten to, A, I think that was the first time I'd gotten to go on a road trip without my family, without my parents. I was 18 and my friend was 17 and we both just like, we're like, all right, we're going to go see AFI in Chicago. Bye mom and dad. And, uh, you know, we just gallivanted off without even any hotel reservations and just figured it out and we made it happen. And it was another one of the greatest shows. And then the next time they toured, they did four tours for Sing the Sorrow and it was, it was death of spring, death of summer, death of fall and death of winter. So Death of Fall was the Chicago show, and then Death of Winter brought them to the Fillmore in Denver on March 19th of 2004, but about a week or two before that, uh, they canceled the rest of the tour because Davey Havoc had developed a cyst on one of his vocal cords. And his doctors were like, if you don't cancel the rest of this tour, you're probably never going to sing again. And so they, the last show they did was in Florida, and actually a friend of mine who lives there was at the last show they did before they canceled the rest of them, and he said that 
he really sounded bad and he was like letting the audience sing a lot of the songs and it was just like obvious that some, also it's 319 on this clock in my room right now and that show should have been march 19th that's really cool I wow. like stuff like that happens but anyway so we didn't get to go to the show at the Fillmore on march 19th and we just got refunds for the tickets and that was the shame but uh, the next show that they played after he had healed up was uh, in San Diego for this radio festival or whatever. And since it was the first show back, me and my same friend who went to Chicago were like, well, I guess we got to go to San Diego because we didn't get to see him at the Fillmore. And so we drove out to San Diego in my Volkswagen and uh, it was such a fun adventure. It was the first that was the first show I got to see them play anything off of Black Sails in the Sunset except for God Called In Sick Today, which was the song that they closed like every show with for years. Um, and so that was really cool. And it was funny too, because that show being like a huge radio festival, it was like, I think 50 Cent played on a different stage. And, you know, like, I I forgot who else I, I could look. But um, anyway, you know, it wasn't like a punk show necessarily, right? And there were so many people there in this big open GA space in a parking lot or whatever to see AFI. You know, there wasn't really any moshing. It was just like that ocean of people, you know, where it's just like this movement and the whole crowd is one mass that's just moving together. And uh, at some point, somebody fell over and took somebody else with them. And then the whole crowd in front of the stage just fell over and couldn't really get up because they were all piled on top of each other to the point that AFI had to stop the song they were playing. They were like, hey, uh, how come you're not helping each other up? Like come on, you, you standing there at the back of all the ocean of people that fell over. Why are you not helping that person up that's in front of you? Come on. And they just like started commanding everybody from the stage. Like if you're standing up and somebody's laying down next to you, fucking reach down and pick them up. What are you doing? And it was just so obvious that these people had not been at a punk show before, you know, yeah. they didn't understand the dynamic of like, we're all here for each other. And so eventually everybody was able to get up and, you know, everyone was standing again and they were like, okay, Let's come back into that song from the bridge. And then they finished the song, you know, and it was it was a great show. But it was just such an interesting thing because that was the first real experience of seeing them in an environment that was not a punk show. And it was really kind of telling of just like, OK, this this band is entering new territory, you know. Mm -hmm. And then uh, that was the last time I saw them for a couple of years. And then they were on Warp Tour 2006 and I saw them there. And that was the only December Underground era show that I got to see. And then they were gone again, making Crash Love for a few years. And I didn't see him again until 2009. And then it was after 2009 that I really started seeing them often again because they started doing more stuff. And that was also to the point that I was like starting to understand how important it was to just like travel and go see special shows if they weren't coming to Denver, you know, because prior to that, it was just like other than those two shows in, uh, in Chicago and San Diego, it was just like, well, whatever, you know, like I'll just wait till they come to Denver. And now I'm just like, okay, if that special show is happening, I better not miss it. And in 2010, a friend of mine and I drove out to San Diego or uh, San Francisco. Kitty. Hey, kitty. <laughs> um, in, uh, in, in San Francisco, they played at a venue called Slims, which is really small. It's like 600 capacity. And the previous times that we had seen AFI it was in venues that were like, you know, five to 7,000 capacity. And so seeing them in basically their hometown, because they're from the Bay Area, uh, in a venue that only holds like 600 people, I was just like, uh, we kind of need to go to that. And so I hopped online as soon as tickets went on sale and was able to get two tickets for it. And then it was sold out in minutes, you know. 
And then we drove out there for it and it turned out like they didn't make any big fanfare about like this is a special show or anything. It was just like we knew it was going to be. And sure enough, that was one of the most obscure set lists I've ever seen them play. They did B-sides. They did. It's the only time I've seen them play, but Home is Nowhere. They did it. They fucking played that song live. And it was absolutely incredible. And you know, at the, at the like sort of like build crescendo part and like uh, halfway through the song where it's like, give me something real. And then it just like peaks at that peak. He, Davey Havoc just staged dove and crowd like somersaulted into the crowd and sang the rest of that song on top of the crowd. And it was one of the greatest experiences of my whole life. And just like knowing that those special shows happen across the country or whatever. And like finally understanding, like those are not events to be missed, you know? Yeah, it was like that. So 2010, you know, kind of really pushed me into like making sure that I saw them as often as I could. And then let's see, they came through opening for Green Day at Fiddler's Green uh, later 2010. Of course, I went to that and then didn't see them again for another three years because they were off making burials. And then um, they played a whole bunch on the burials tour. And uh, that was when. Let's see, they did, well, they did a, the, the first show they did was at the Troubadour in, in Hollywood, the first show for the Burials tour cycle. And the Troubadour is super small. It's like, if you've been to the Marquee in Denver, it feels like that. It's that small. And so seeing AFI in that environment was just incredible. And that show was the first show that I saw them pull out a whole bunch of really old material that I'd never seen them play. And that one was like, it was like the closing, like that show combined with the San Francisco show a few years before, prior was like the closing of this chapter of just like things that I had been lusting after in my imagination for like 15 years. And then, find, well, let's see, at that point, 2010, 12 years, 15 years by the time they played the Gothic, which was the other like third piece that needed to close that, that AFI experience that I had just been dreaming about for so long. And then finally, finally, collectively with those three shows finally got but yeah, they did for Burials Tour. It was great because they did that show in Hollywood and then they played a little sort of little ish theater in Lawrence, Kansas, like right before they did Riot Fest 2013 in Denver. And so I went to that one. I went to Lawrence and then I also went to Riot Fest, of course. And those two shows were pretty much the same. But just seeing them play so many different old songs, they were just like it was the first time in a long time that they were really pulling out a lot of old stuff from their like 90s catalog that they don't play anymore. And so I was just like, oh, I have to go to multiple shows on this tour because I never, you never know what you're going to miss. And so I did. And then, yeah, that was, that was that era. And then they did, they did the Gothic in 2017. And they also did Red Rocks in 2017, which is where the shirt came from. And both of those shows to, together as well were just like the, the like closure that I needed after feeling like I got into them too late because I never got to see them pre-sing the sorrow, you know? Mm-hmm. So there, that's, you you wanted me to nerd out here I there I went. <laughs> this is this is great man. Like mm-hmm. this is this is why I wanted to start this show and I knew this is why I knew that you would be an incredible guest to have on the show just because you know like we we were talking about earlier you don't play an instrument or sing but you live the life yeah you know of musicians first right. of all but also you just have this incredible passion for music um both as like a listener and as someone who's like you know helped out bands and tour music right. and stuff yeah you know? it's just i mean i don't want to say that it's rare to see like someone have just as much of a passion for like the professional side of things as much as like 
you know, just being a music fan, but I, I don't know any other tour managers really, to be fair. You know, I I don't, (laughs) I mean, I I know my one friend who would help me out with a tour Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that's Aaron. Um, (laughs) But it's, it's just kind of, um, you know, it's cool because we, we often think about like the music industry and music, music fans, you know, um, we, we often think of those two things as like two separate entities, you know, like the, the management and the sound crew and the bar staff and like, you know, the, the tour management and, and, um, you know, your lighting director and all that, like, those are the people that make the music happen. And then there are the people who show up to the show, buy the t-shirt, buy the cassette, buy the hot sauce. Yeah, and yeah. Every band has hot sauce now, including oh, I'm us. so stoked about that. That's <laughs> another thing I love is hot sauce. So. Oh, yeah, for sure. God. And we could talk more about some specific instances of uh, you and I being on tour in the post show, <laughs> which I think that's what our post show is going to be today is going to be uh, me and Aaron's tour hijinks. and. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to um, ha- talk about that in the green room here in a little bit. But, cool. um, you know, I think that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's often two separate things where, like, we think of the people who make live music happen in a professional setting and people who enjoy music walking around. And, um, you know, often, more often than not, really, like, those two people are the same thing. But, you know, it's not all the time when you hear about someone who like is very familiar with the music industry um you know has has worked with tons of venues and like agency people and whatnot and and like coordinated tours and stuff like that who also is the person who will show up to your show and three other shows that night and buy one of each t-shirt from every band if he can and uh support that artist in every way possible you know it's 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 not always apparent that um those two people can be the same person and that is why i wanted to have you here um do you have a favorite afi album oh god that's such a hard question because all their albums are so good um you know it it depends on the period of time in my life, which I think that can be said for anybody and for any band and any album cycles, you know, but lately, I mean, so for a long time, I considered it to be the art of drowning because that was the one that got me into the band. That's the one I've listened to the most times by far. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's a perfect record, but all their records are perfect. And (laughs) then, you know, black sales, I was also there, but like, I guess as of late, Sing of Sorrow is the one that I've been coming back to lately again. And it, you know, it, it's funny because like I said, in 2003, when it came out, there were so many songs that I took a long time to warm up to because they were so different and not what I was expecting out of an AFI album. But looking back on it now, and especially through the lens of knowing what music they put out after Sing the Sorrow and just kind of seeing the progression as a whole over all those years, I really keep coming back to that one as the ultimate because it was really, honestly, the most experimental in a way and the most like outside the box of what was expected of them and what they had already done. And I've come to appreciate that about musicians a lot in recent years is like, if you can 
just throw caution to the wind and not be concerned about what your fans are expecting necessarily and just release and record and perform what you want and what you are feeling, that makes me have even more of a high level of respect for the band and for the songwriters. And, you know, that could certainly be argued that Sing of Sorrow is not that album because it's got so much pop built into it that, you know, critics or anybody could say that that is the least good example of that type of thinking because they were supposedly or potentially like, you know, pandering to what the overall music industry would be expecting out of an album that would propel them into like mainstream culture and mainstream popularity. And so, you know, you can look at it that way if you want to, for sure. But the way I look at it is they had been a punk band for, you know, a decade and they were like, we want to be so much more than that. You know, we want to experiment creatively with musical styles and you know put some electronic stuff in there that's not necessarily punk rock or whatever and like really just like challenging the sort of punk rock status quo of you know what may be expected of them and they put out an album that arguably is not a punk album by any means in any songs and it's so good though it's just so heartfelt and just you can just feel the passion in it and especially looking back on it now and knowing how old they were at the time that they recorded that album and just understanding that it was like these people who were in their mid-twenties who had been in punk bands since they were 14 and then they're like having this opportunity to put out a huge record on a major label and get, you know, make that jump to the next level of, of international fame or whatever you want to call it. And they just still put their heart and soul into it and made the album they wanted to make. Like, I, I, I mean, I don't know them personally. I've never talked to them about any of this. But, like, I just can feel, when I listen to that record, I just feel honesty. And there are so many bands that when they get bigger or they get a label contract or whatever and they change their sound, it doesn't feel honest to me. It feels like they're trying to fit a mold in order to craft success from a from a financial standpoint or whatever, you know? And with Sing of Sorrow, for me, it doesn't feel that way. It feels honest and it feels like it's got the perfect amount of raw and the perfect amount of emotion, but it's a major label record and it also has the perfect amount of production behind it. And it just, everything about it for me is just the quintessential AFI experience. Because in a lot of ways, I feel like it bridges the gap between their punk rock days and then whatever else they became with December Underground and Crash Love and Burials and the Blood album, and now the new songs that they've just released, because, oh, and uh, the EP, the Missing Man EP, I forgot about that one, that's the most recent one, uh, besides the two singles they just put out. But all of those albums are so just different. They all kind of go into different territory. December Underground has a lot of screamo and a lot of electronic in it. Crash Love has no screaming whatsoever, and it's almost more of a pop rock record and then you know like we were saying earlier burials is super dark and blood album is just interesting and all over the place in its own way and it's kind of like a combination of the previous two record styles combined and then the next two releases kind of went that same direction too and looking back on it you know like when, when like i said when sing Sorrow came out i was just like why is this not a punk album i like this but it's not what i was expecting and then looking back on it it is so much more punk rock than anything they did after it and but in its own way you know like punk rock in the attitude of like we're gonna do whatever we want yes and that is what draws me to punk rock at the end of the day is the attitude of be yourself 
and do what you are passionate about and put forth the music and the art that you feel. And don't Amen. be fake. Don't be fake. And I've, like I said, I've seen so many bands who I love their first few albums or whatever, and then they change their style because they get on a major label and it feels fake. It feels forced and it feels like they're like, this is the formula for how we reach success. And to me, Sing the Sorrow is the antithesis of that. So I guess I would have to say that one. Yeah. Wow. Great answer. <laughs> um, that's everything that you said about punk rock. And, uh, you know, I think that punk rock is more of an attitude than a sound. And, you mm -hmm. know, whatever fashion punk kids want to like, give me crap for that. Punk's just punk. I don't care. It's not about a, a look. It's not about a sound. It's about just being your goddamn self, being yep. authentic and letting other people be their authentic self. And punk rock has a lot more to do with pacifism than people think it does. Yeah, 100%. And, um, yeah. You know, I think that Aaron say you're the, one of the most punk rock dudes I've ever met in my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, and look at know, my hair. I don't look like a punk at all. <laughs> From yeah, the I, fashion punk standpoint of things. But I never have. And that's the thing, you know, I never have. I've n I've always looked like this. Here we are destroying what punk rock looks like and fine. what what it sounds like and what it acts like and what it is. Um, last question for you, my friend, uh, before we head into the green room. Um, what is your favorite AFI song? I know that it's hard to pick, but if you had to pick one AFI song for your desert island, what would it be? Well, it, you know, it's funny, and I'm going to go off on a little bit of a thing here because... The Desert Island question, I've always thought was funny because I know that when I love music so much, I listen to it over and over and over again. Like if I fall in love with a record, I listen to it over and over and over and over and over right. again. Not necessarily until I'm tired of it, but until I'm almost tired of it and right. then I stop. And then I don't listen to it for sometimes years because I want to let that feeling of being so into it just like ruminate in my memory. And so I've always thought whenever anybody says, what was the one record you take with you to a desert island or whatever, I wouldn't take any because I wouldn't <laughs> want to wear it out. I would want to be on that desert island in silence so that I could listen to music in my head and listen to whatever I want. But that's just a fun digression because I've always thought that the desert island question was deserving of that answer. Very clever. Uh, however, favorite AFI song. I've gone through this so many times in my head, too, just for no other reason than my own entertainment. But uh, <laughs> I honestly think I would have to say But Home is Nowhere. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Great song. Great song. And that's a great place to end it. Um, I think uh, I think we've sufficiently nerded out today, my friend. Um, this is going to be a long episode. Oh, so good. good. I'm glad that's that's totally that's totally fine because we're here to you know, get into the nitty gritty and the aesthetics of like having a short episode is, you know, it's a lot less important to me than like getting to the meat of what we're trying to, sure, what we're trying yeah. to accomplish. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we can always edit out my likes and ums and, <laughs> you know, all the, the stuff that probably takes up about an hour of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and like yeah it's a lot of and like um yeah <laughs> thank you so much for coming on fanatomy and um everyone who uh listens to this is uh is is super cool because uh yeah i said so and aaron said so yeah 
<laughs> Thank you, man. Um, I'll talk <laughs> yeah, to you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for being here. And thanks for having me do this. Because, you know, it's funny when, like I said, we went to San Francisco that one time, me and my friend, to see him play that one super special show. And I feel like for a good portion of the first nine hour drive of that trip, we weren't even listening to music. We were nerding out about AFI and the <laughs> records we had and the records we were seeking. And it was literally just the two of us in the van just talking about this band for like nine hours. And that's honestly the last time I can remember actually talking about them as in depth as this. So thank you for having me on so I could do this. It feels really good. <laughs> Absolutely. This is the place for that. Yeah. Um, but hell yeah, dude. Thank you so much for, for being a part of this podcast. And uh, yeah, that's it, folks. We'll see you in the green room. Woo! Cut slate. <laughs> And that's episode one of Fanatomy. Thank you so much for listening to it. It was so cool to get to talk to Aaron about AFI and Seventh Circle and the Aaron Say archives and just learn about what an intricate archivist he is. Um, and it's it's just really great to have him be the first guest on the show because he's such an important figure in my life and a wonderful friend, a great mentor. And uh, Seventh Circle Music Collective is such an important space to everyone in our local DIY community and anyone who's ever toured through Colorado and needed a show at the last minute knows that seventh circle is awesome. So thank you, Aaron, for being a part of this. Please go check out the Aaron say archives. And I would also get, like to give a special thanks to Mr. Johnny Leftwich for handling all the editing and producing and scheduling and all the legal and logistical aspects of this show, um, because he really has been the catalyst for getting it off the ground and keeping it going. So I would just like to thank Johnny right now for helping me get this thing going and, and keep it going for as long as we can. And I would like to thank you, last but definitely not least, the listener, for listening to this show and giving it your time and attention. It really does mean the world to me. Um, and I would love it if you would share this on any and all social media platforms that you have so we can get the word out to as many people as possible and book you know, more and more well-known guests. Um, it's, it's really rewarding to have such a platform and create something that I really believe in from my heart. So if you would like to help us out, please share on social media. And also please consider subscribing to our Patreon, where I talk to each guest that we have on the show just as friends as we would in a green room in a series called The Green Room. And uh, if you like The Green Room and you want to support the Patreon, we're also going to be adding more stuff to the Patreon down the line that I can't talk about yet, but I promise it's really, really cool. So thank you again for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoy all of our episodes to come. Thank you so much. This is Fanatomy. And one last thing, please get vaccinated.
It would be really cool to be able to hug and mosh with all of you as soon as possible. So please do what you can to take care of yourself, and we'll see you soon. Dormantizer!